Hello, I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson. And we are your hosts of The The Premise, Premise. where we get to the story behind the storyteller. And this season four, that's right, we're in season four. We've got some amazing storytellers lined up, and we really appreciate you listening. Be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Let's roll. Autobots, roll out. Hello and welcome to The Premise. I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson. And we're super excited to be here today talking with author Walter Green, who is the author of This is the Moment, How One Man's Year-Long Journey Captured the Power of Extraordinary Gratitude. Walter was chairman of the board and CEO of Harrison Conference Services for 25 years, during which time it grew into the leading conference center management company in the United States, a frequent lecturer at the Wharton Graduate School of Business, and Hofstra and Long Island Universities. Walter has also been featured as an expert on the topic of effective meetings in numerous national publications, associated figures with the Young Presidents Organization and the World Presidents Organization. He's presently a member of the Chief Executives Organization. Since selling his company, he has mentored young adults and is actively involved in several nonprofit organizations. Walter lives here in San Diego with his wife, Lola. Walter, welcome to The Premise. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure to have you. I have to tell our listeners, Walter and I worked together maybe 10, 13 years ago. Exactly. (laughs) Good things come around, don't they? This is great. Look forward to the reconnection. You know, Walter, in two words, I'd say, you know, you're on a mission. I guess three words. On a mission. Aren't you, Walter? Yeah, actually, that's true. And uh, the journey that I took for my book, uh, that I actually took the journey that became my book, This mm-hmm. is the Moment, mm-hmm. one of the steps along the way, and now it's turned into a movement. So when it we really spoke has. last, it was a <laughs> reflection of a personal journey. Now it's a reflection of a personal mission. Yeah. Tell us about that mission. Tell us about this journey of gratitude. Well, you know, the the end of the story, so to speak, and I'll be happy to give you how it evolved over the years, but the end of the story is if you and I and Chad were creating a culture, we sat down and we said, you know, it's important to pay tribute to people who have had an impact in our lives, so why don't we wait till they're gone to do it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And maybe they would be in a casket so to make sure they didn't hear it. Mm. Now, I don't think the three of us, Jennifer, Chad, and I would create that context. We would say, why would we wait until the person couldn't hear the difference they made? So the insights that have actually evolved over three decades, but actually began even earlier than that, was why don't we do it when the person is alive and well? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. We wait till someone's gone to wax poetic <laughs> about how much they meant to us. And you're success- suggesting we start sooner. How did this journey of gratitude begin for you? 
Oh, the long story, of course, is that I lived <laughs> eight, eight different homes by the time I was 16. I never really had a close relationship and really always missed it. You know, many times we value things because we don't have them even more than when we do have them. Nevertheless, it was years later before I really developed deep relationships. And for my 50th birthday, I wanted to really celebrate five really close friends that I had for 15 years. So I invited them when I was living on the East Coast into New York City for a weekend, and I had my immediate family join me. And the purpose of that was for me to thank each of them publicly Mm. for what they had meant in my life. And that was when I was age 50. Mm. And of course, you know, uh, after that, uh, we attended, as many people do, these celebrations of life and the memorial services. And I was always taken by how much people work on those tributes. I mean, it's unbelievable how beautiful they are. But when I walk out, I always think, oh my gosh, how sad. <laughs> right. I yeah. never heard it. Mm-hmm. And worse than that, the person who said it regrets that they didn't tell the person. So that's what gave birth to that year-long journey, Jennifer, when I when I decided that's not how I wanted to live my life. That is not how I wanted to leave people who had been important to me. So I took a whole year. Um, I didn't leave my house for a year, happily married. I went out, came back several times, and I ended up meeting with 44 people in the United States and abroad to sit down with them and tell them explicitly in a one-on-one meeting what they had meant to me. Mm. That evolved into the book, changed thousands of lives, and I don't know if the most recent iteration, just to kind of tie this three-decade effort together, was during the pandemic, I realized that we still had the ability to connect with people quickly and inexpensively. And so modern technology allowed us to continue to pay tribute to individuals really without a lot of uh, difficulty, no travel, no nothing. And that became the last chapter in what's now become the Say It Now movement. Yeah. Yeah. You you outline ideas. I mean, people probably make a lot of excuses about why this isn't going to work for them. They don't have the time. They wouldn't know how to put together the list. They're not good writers. Like there's lots of excuses, but you really make it easy by laying it out, giving us examples, things, you know, how to put together your list, number one. And so this, this end of your book has become this movement now, this Say It Now movement. Yeah. So uh, I, I would say You know, I I always liked the selling proposition when I was in the executive conference business. Really meeting at our conference centers was really far superior to other alternatives of traditional hotels. I always thought that was a good selling proposition. Hmm. Jennifer and Chad, never in my life have I had a better selling proposition than say it now. Hmm. No one, no one, not one, not singular one has ever been disappointed by doing it. Oh, I'm sure. Everybody has been joyful from uh, very ordinary, important people to very high-powered people. The results are all the same. 
Well, let's talk about your journey. You know, you talk in the book about this, but I, I'd like to ask you, you know, to share with our readers and our listeners, how did this journey change you? Well, first, the, the process. Mm. You know, we all feel, oh, you know, that person's been important to me. We all, we all know that. We all kind of understand none of us are self-made. We've all been shaped by other people. But we, I raise that level of consciousness for myself when I ask myself, specifically before visiting each of these people, what difference did that person really make in my life? Mm -hmm. And I had a legal pad. I wrote down each of the ways they had influenced me, and I took that very pad with me to make sure I didn't miss to communicate the importance that person played in my life. So to your question, number one, I elevated the depth of my gratitude to these important relationships. Mm. Number you know, two, oh, I had the blessing <laughs> of expressing it. And number three, I've lost nine of the 44 people since we spoke 13 years ago. Wow. And I have had my grief modified and lessened by the fact that I had said everything to them yeah. that was important to me. Yeah. And you recorded your sessions. So really, you created a legacy for you, your family, their families. Talk to us more about how those recordings have become such a blessing in your life. Yeah. So this was all, this whole journey was just a very personal journey. I know you know that it became a book, but that's because I was asked to write a book about the journey. Mm -hmm. By all many people, right? Everyone who heard it was like, oh, this is a book. <laughs> yeah, and for all those authors out there, I really apologize, but this is a person who was asked to write this book because of the experience that I had. Uh, nevertheless, when I set out to do it, I had a process for having the conversations, mm -hmm. and fascinating to me, even though I am a process person in the conference business, the process never changed in the 44 conversations. And then I thought, I know how out of the ordinary it is to take in gratitude. We're not used to it. It's not common. Yeah, so we're if not. It's not common yeah. to express it. It's not common to receive it. Mm -hmm. So I knew in that couple hours together, the emotions would preempt some of the listening. So I said, why don't I record it? And at the time, it was a disc, and I presented each of them at the end. It was actually quite an effort where I presented a picture of the two of us, also a 120, I remember the number of words, 120-page letter, which captured the highlights of the conversation, and then the disc. It was presented as a thank you gift to them to reinforce our time together. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a lot of effort for sure. It was. And, and it you was took a, a photograph. It was a, it was a labor of love. When I go to many of their homes, the frames are hung, the letters hmm. are hung. I'm sure. Uh, individuals get to listen to it. The families listen to the discs again. When the person passes, they actually have the words of their loved ones. 
and how so how he was so much appreciated or she was so much appreciated by this particular person. When you first started this journey and you started reaching out to people, you mentioned in the book that people asked if you were okay. People thought you were dying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Almost it's, everyone, actually. That and, struck me. You know, yeah. it goes back to what you just said, that we're not used to getting gratitude. And, you know, praise in general is, I think, something that's hard. But it's, it's especially harder for men because men are socialized to control emotion. And yet here you were doing the exact opposite with people who were, you know, of the same age as you, maybe even some older. Yeah. So I would say this aspect of the receipt of a lifelong expression of gratitude was unusual for men and women, maybe a little bit more unusual for men. Mm-hmm. And it took sometimes more than one denial of difficulty before they would actually feel more comfortable. So it usually went like this. Really? Are you okay, Walter? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I, I, I want to do this while I'm alive and well. And they said, are you sure you're okay? <laughs> so so it, it took a little repetition, but I can tell you, uh, I wouldn't trade those. I guess there are probably 100 hours involved in conversations. They were some of my most precious hours of my life. I bet. I bet. I want to talk about your formative years. I think they prepared for you, the, this, you for this in some ways, in a lot of ways. You spent a good portion of your childhood preparing for the deaths of your parents. You were nine when your mom was diagnosed with cancer. Luckily, she lived to be 93. And then your father had a heart attack when you were, I think you were 11. And sadly, he actually did die when you were 17. How much do you think that experience of prepping for death at such a young age led you to this year of gratitude, this victory lap, as you called it? Yeah, well, I would say, uh, first of all, it forced me to grow up very quickly. Oh, I bet. So, uh, you know, the reason I wanted to move on to my next stage of life after working most of my life at forty, at 58, I was five years older than when my father had died. And I said, if I want to do something else with my life, I better get started, mm-hmm. better get start started. And more to your point, um, there's nothing more profound that drives home the unpredictability of life than losing a parent when you're 11 yeah. or 10 or five or whatever age. Sure. So you believe they're going to be here and then the next morning they're gone. Hmm. And the reality is there are over a million people in three years of the pandemic that left their families in the same unexpected way. So it is not just for the person who lost a parent, you just never know, especially in these times. So yeah. I, uh, I knew that these people who had been so important in my life, they were here now, and I was not gonna miss that opportunity. How much do you think your movement, the Say It Now movement, was affected by COVID. And just, you know, our society and everything has changed so much in those those years. How much of that affected, I think, I guess what I want to say is, are people more open to hearing about this idea and taking your advice? I actually think what's, what I, I, I'll be a little immodest for a moment. 
this is such an obvious insight mm. that it doesn't take brain surgery or a pandemic to say that guy's right. It's been going on for years. You know, often what is common doesn't mean it's good. It's just common. Mm-hmm. And I, I, there is, there are only two reactions I get to my story. One is, oh my God. <laughs> and the second one, they actually do something about it. Now, the first reaction is of interest to me. The second one is my psychic income. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you have started a movement. You know, a lot of what you're, you know, the work that you've done in philanthropy and is, is, is youth-focused. What is your hope for the young people of today? Well, there's a, a couple of things. One is that, uh, you know, I guess I was a little influenced by my dad's dream of having a dude ranch uh, when I was two years old and it got a storm and we lost everything when I was four. And really from the time I was four to 11, he was scrambling to try and figure out how to recapture some financial stability for the family. So I, I kind of knew what a modest childhood was about. Um, and uh, I, I've been very fortunate in my life. I've worked hard, but I've been very fortunate to have connected with people who have been important to me and the life that I've led and the marriage that I have and the family that I have. And and I think it's just abundantly clear that there's not a level playing field in this country that uh, forget a modest childhood. You've got people that are homeless. You've got people who are, are in foster homes and you have people who are in single parent homes struggling. And so I thought, why don't I concentrate on trying to level the playing field with those young kids? Because in many ways, they have some qualities that the better off kids will never have. And I'm reminded of the story of a good friend of mine who has a double degree in Harvard Law and Harvard Business, who is as smart as anybody I know. And he said the one person he never wanted to compete with is a smart guy who's been hungry. Hmm. <laughs> right. And so right. I'm, I'm trying to level the playing field for the hungry. And I can tell you it's been a very gratifying focus for my philanthropy. Hmm. Tell us more about that. I know that there was a particular story you told about raising money for a home. In, in the book, you mentioned it. Tell us a little bit more about that. A couple that come to mind. Uh, one was a wonderful after-school program. This is kind of interesting because when I was working so hard, I didn't have a lot of time to spend in philanthropy. I was trying to build a business, had fifteen hundred employees, and it was it was a full-time job. But I decided at age fifty-eight that was it. Mm. I was going to work now full-time for others. Uh, without compensation, just looking for arenas that I could make a difference. And interestingly enough, we saw, my wife and I saw a little 60-second spot about an after-school program in Southeast San Diego. Hmm. 
it was a science enrichment center. We had just just moved to San Diego. I didn't even know how to get there. You didn't have ways and all this technology. So, you know, we drove over there and saw this 2,000, I'm saying 2,000 square foot building with bars on the window. And I walked in not knowing what would be there. And it was electric. Kids were dissecting animals. They were working in a photo lab. They were studying the rainforest. I thought, wow, this is unbelievable. So I was so inspired by the director and asked her about her dreams. And she said, someday I'd love a large place where we could take care of hundreds of kids. Right, yeah. And in 2004, I think it was, we opened a 15,000 square foot place called the Elementary Institute of Science. It's still a vibrant home today in Southeast San Diego, inspiring young kids in science. What was fascinating to me is I had no experience in elementary education, no experience for sure in science, but I know excitement and I know leadership. And that was a long-term relationship. I'm actually still friendly with the executive director. And it's 21 years later. Nice. 20 years later. Yeah. (laughs) Probably more than that. It's probably over 20. Mm -hmm. And you encourage children to show gratitude. You know, it's never too early, you say in the book. How do you think learning how to give gratitude and think about gratitude in this way helps children become, you know, better not just better humans, but also better acquainted with who they are and what they want out of life? Yeah, wonderful question. You know, I, I, I just say what happened for me, which is the minute you pay attention to something, mm-hmm. it means more to you, whatever that is, good, bad, yeah. or different, right? Yeah, yeah. The second thing is my contemporaries, when I talk about gratitude, I've got to, And when I start speaking specifically now, I'm talking about the recognition of people who have been important to us. Well, many of my friends have had 60 years of not doing that, some 70, some more. So they've been not doing it so long that I have to teach them how to unlearn that. Mm. Then I have to teach them something new. Mm. Well, guess what? With youth, I just teach them the way it is. Right. Yeah. And that's why I'm attracted to building the foundation. And the foundation for our movement is built around youth. And I think those, the youth will teach the adults. Amen to that. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a story in your book where your father, Robert, you both are at a restaurant, I believe, and he covers a bill for some strangers in the restaurant. Just a yeah. random act of kindness. Exactly that. It's funny, you know, my my dad was a wonderful guy. We didn't spend a lot of time together, but I knew he liked baseball games and Mm. in Jacksonville, Florida, there's a young nineteen year old named Hank Aaron. (laughs) Never heard of him. You remember Hank Aaron? (laughs) Yeah, he was uh, on the Jacksonville uh, minor league team, so my dad would enjoy going. I said, Well, if I want to spend time with my dad, I, I should go to those games. So one night after the game, he said, well, let's step off and have a bite. And we sat down and I, it, was a, it was just one of those 
thousands of moments we all have in our life. And I, I saw my dad just say, you know, that table over there, I, I just send me the check. I'm thinking, mm. I don't, he didn't even take the time to go meet them, but I think he knew them. And it wasn't like we had much in the way of resources. This was a very modest restaurant. Mm. But just that act awakened me to the potential pleasure of giving in unexpected moments. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Unexpected moments. Yeah. I think it, I think that moment and, you know, that childhood that you had, as we talked a little bit about earlier, your formative years really did create the person who you are today. And this idea of kindness comes directly from that moment, I think. Well, I, I think it's probably an accumulate. I don't think, you know, this, uh, you know, my mother <laughs> worked at a library until she was 92. Mm. Uh, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, you can tell your author. She read over 9,000 books in her life, started a lending library at 13 years old. I love that story. And worked for 80 years around yeah. literature because when my dad died, her books were her friends. When her second husband had Parkinson's for six years and didn't speak, her books were her best friend again. Yeah. And when I left Jacksonville, Florida to move her in her final eight weeks of life, and we went to the mayor of Jacksonville office so she could receive the Volunteer of the Year Award, <laughs> I don't think it's just your dad in the coffee shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's cool. Kindness, you know, so back to our point, like, you know, bestowing praise reaps benefits for the giver. It's not just about, and you say this in the beginning of your book, too. I mean, you you embarked on this journey for you. Mm. Little did you know how much it was going to affect those who were part of this journey with you. Yeah. So I actually, uh, Jennifer, that it, it, um, I'm now trying to get back into my mental set at the time. When I first set out to do this, it was because, in a way, it was for me because I wanted to make sure I got to say to them, how important they were to me. So it became important to them. And then it became more important to me. So it started out with me, went to them, and became more important to me when the process mined how rich my life had been because of these relationships. Yeah, it really shined a light on it, didn't it? Bright light. And that's really the gratitude, the expression of gratitude. It's like putting a light on it. It's not that it's not there. Mm -hmm. There. You, 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 those good deeds are there. But Indeed. you don't shine a light on it. It's not so visible. That brings me to a point. I really wanted an opportunity to read this small endorsement. It's not even an endorsement. It's a blurb from someone who you met, Andrew Zenoff. Do you mind if I read this? Sure. It says, you shined your light on me, and I felt a sense of value that my life meant something more than I thought it did. Again, that's Andrew Zenoff. That is powerful. Mm. Yeah, well, one of the things that's simply astonishing hmm. is that people 
do not know the impact they've had on others. Right. I would say there isn't a soul walking this planet that has much of an idea of the impact that they've had on so many people. And when you take the time to sit down with someone to express it, much of it, they aren't even aware of it. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine how it feels, not just to learn the things that you did that you knew you did, but how about all the things that made a difference that you had no idea about? And most of the people dying today, they have no idea. Yeah. The Say It Now movement, I want to change that. I want people <laughs> to understand their legacy when they're alive. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I was listening to NPR a couple of years ago, and there was this story about this woman who was young. It, she was a freshman in college. Her parents were dropping her off at the university, and she did not want to be there. And she wasn't meeting very many friendly people, and she was ready to turn around, get in the car with her parents, and go home. And then this man dressed as a clown came up and gave her a yellow flower. I might be misquoting the story just a little bit. But my recollection is that that moment that he came up to her and said, this is going to be a perfect day for you, you know, own it basically the idea of what he said to her and he gave her this flower and she changed her mind she decided it was a sign and she had to stay in school and the rest is a wonderful story and then years years later she found that person and thanked him because it's his direct you know that moment that directly affected her choice and he didn't even remember it and i thought how beautiful is that that this changed the course of her entire life and he didn't even realize the impact he had on her, but he did. That's a brilliant example of, ex of exactly what I'm talking about. And imagine how he felt when this woman got in touch with him 25, 30 years later to thank him. And since <laughs> you started this podcast, there have been thousands of those going on throughout this country. Absolutely. Well, I did put together my own list, I have to say. I have 38 people on my list. Sadly, some of them are dead. Okay. But yeah, yeah, I'm ready. Um, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful idea, not just because I want these people to know what they mean to me, but the idea of the reflection on your own life, you know, and who you are as a person, how you got here. And you say this over and over again, that, you know, you're not self-made. And a lot of people might think they are self-made, but you were very clear in saying, you know, I wouldn't have gotten where I am today had it not been for the help of these key people. I wonder oh, if you would- yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say, I wonder if you'd had that, rec that realization had you not gone through this process. Well, I, I think, first of all, I, I always knew I, I had a lot, I needed a lot of help along the way. So the level of the, impact I never fully appreciated until I went through the process. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I would say the other statement I can make with almost absolute authority, there is no one that's self-made. None. Yeah. None of us. Sure. So, if we think we are, it's only because we haven't given enough thought to how we got to where we are. So 
whether you have 38 or not, that's another story. And the reason I was a little hesitant to be talking about 44 is I don't want that to be a turnoff to somebody who said, oh, you know, right. that's a different yeah. kind of guy. He's got 44. If you have one person who's made a difference in your life, let me tell you a story because I think it makes the point. This is a big time CEO from Europe. I used to see him at these association meetings once, eh, maybe once a year. And he usually said, okay, Walter, what's going on in your life? What's new? What's going on? And so <laughs> it was right about the time of the journey that I was on. And so I told him what I was doing. Now, this is a big time uh, holding company executive, global enterprise. I'm in the midst of telling him that I am taking this time. And tears come to him. We're sitting on a, we're not sitting, we're walking, waiting for a, boat actually had a yacht in Copenhagen and tears comes to his eyes. And I said to him, I, I think I, he might have hit a little soft spot. He said, I can't even talk about it. Hmm. I said, okay, then we won't. And then of course, you know, he wants to talk about it. <laughs> right? And he tells me the story about when he was 27 years old, trying to start a, a life in business. He had no credit. And this man befriended him who thought he had a lot of potential, and he signed, co-signed a lease on his first manufacturing plant. Wow. Without that business, it's unlikely that he would ever grown to the company that he was. And he told me he realized that later in life, and he decided he was going to go back and tell the man the power and impact he had over. So he said, you know, I just completed this major acquisition. I said, as soon as this integration takes place, I know how to reach him. I'll get back to him. I have to do it. He has to know. Yeah. During the integration, the man died. Oh. He's never forgiven himself. Oh, boy. And that was probably 40 years after the man did his act of kindness. Hmm. Yeah, it's never too soon, as you say. Yeah, and often too late. Mm -hmm. You know, I just added the 39th person to my list. <laughs> as I read... You know, we, we can't count the ones that aren't here, though, Jennifer. I just want to make it a little easier for you. We got You said some of them weren't here anymore. That's true. Four of those people, I, I do get to take a... a oh, I will have to take a list. We're at 35, list. and remember now... I'm, in, I, I'm uh, interested in your list, but not inspired until I heard that you've acted on it. Mm, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the thing about the list is like, as I was, when I started reading your book, I first thought to myself, gosh, maybe I could think of, you know, a handful of people, you know, my mom and dad, my, my husband, you know, some obvious people. And as I was reading, I was like, oh, yeah, my that track coach, you know, who gave me my first pair of running shoes because my family was too poor mm. to buy those shoes, who encouraged me to be a runner, you know, mm. and, and my first doctor who really heard me and, you know, just people that you don't really think about all the time, but really have such an impact on you and, and shape who you become. And that's what this book and your movement I think shines a light on for me is it's really about how it affects us and how we get to know ourselves and mm. how we have been shaped right. in this world. Well said. You know, 
you say in your book that you're a private person. <laughs> I, I believe you, but yet you share such intimate and personal moments with strangers in your book. Was that hard for you? Well, I was private, uh, as, as I would describe myself as a typical private person. But sometimes in our lives, there's a larger purpose, and we have to go into maybe what is not our natural comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And I am stunned after even 13 years since the book came out and this current Say It Now movement that's really been launched in the past year. Congratulations, by that, the way. Thank you, which magnifies it. I am, I am just stunned that this is such a new approach to living. Because we've had people write about gratitude for years. Don't forget to say thank you. Uh, be grateful for the freedoms that we have in this country. There's a lot of the umbrella of gratitude. But underneath that umbrella, this is a muscle that most people have never exercised. I think you're talking about the difference between systemic gratitude and episodic gra gratitude. Is that right? Well, yeah. systemic one is likely many of the people on your list. What, what I refer to there is, is that it wasn't just an individual occurrence, that there was a, uh, an extended period of time. For most of mine, they were systemic. They were not individual acts. Mm. However, as you mentioned, your running coach or your doctor or someone else, you can make a, or that story I just told you about the 27-year-old that had his first manufacturing plant uh, facilitated by that gentleman. Those can be episodic, but they're very profound. So I don't discount those at all. It just so happens that I, I took the low-hanging fruit, I always say, you know, I wanted to make sure everybody would had a prolonged impact on my life that at least I would get to them. And I'm sure there are others uh, that would be uh, episodic that, that I could still do. Mm. I want to read something else from your book. Gratitude is like turning on a flashlight in a dark room. It's all in there. It just has to be illuminated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Where did that come from? Oh, that was just an analogy that seemed to me to, you know, I commented on a little bit earlier that, that you don't need anybody to tell you what those 35 or 39 people have meant to you. Right. You just turned on the flashlight. Yeah. And once you turn it on, you can't turn it off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it all becomes very clear. Yeah. I'm curious how you start your day. What's a typical day look like for you? Well, right now, I am really, really excited and engaged in the latest iteration, what I'm calling the Say It Now movement. I am in the midst of a number of initiatives. So 
you visit me in nine months, I will tell you whether I've been able to ignite a million expressions of gratitude. That's my mission. That's my why. That's what I wake up and focus on. It isn't that I stop my mentoring. It isn't that I've stopped supporting some of the philanthropies. But this is an overriding program uh, that I think so far we probably have 400,000. We've introduced this course uh, to over 10,000 classrooms in 45 countries already. And in (laughs) over half of the United States. This Hmm. past month, I think you're aware that we put it on an event uh, at the La Jolla Country Day School. Martin Luther King III came down to speak to support the importance of the Say It Now message. And, you know, you mentioned earlier my, my book from some time ago, but my current activities are, are really about this uh, effort to get people to say it now. And people can join this movement on your website, which is just sayitnow.org. Is that right? Right. So what we wanted to do on the website, see, this is a simple idea. This is not complicated. You get it. Your listeners will get it. It's clear. Now the question is, oh, my God, what do I do? So Mm -hmm. what is first? What is pretty apparent? You can choose. You have two choices. You can choose to just do the common thing. Wait until the person passes and work hard to write a beautiful eulogy. And then you can feel the regrets for having not said that while they're alive. That's a choice. Or you have another option. You can think about that person now. You could reach out to them. And you can let them know the difference they made in your life while they're here. Get the joy from it. They can <laughs> pleasure from it. And you don't have any regrets. So the what, I think, is pretty clear. Now let's get to the how. Well, let me see if I can help them. Yeah. Make it yeah. really simple. Wow, write a letter. How about that? Just write a letter. You can yeah. go make a trip if you want and do what I did, but you don't need to. You can organize a group of people that I did two weeks ago to pay tribute to an individual. Nobody left their home. We paid tribute and made a life-changing expression of gratitude in an individual. And I hung up the phone two days ago with a big-time executive who found 37 people who were indebted to this person. And they each wrote two-page letters, and he put it in an album that was breathtakingly beautiful and delivered it to the person. Wow. <laughs> and the so, journey's different for each person, right? I'm they sorry? Make it their own. I said, and the journey's different for each person, and you, you encourage people it, to make it their own. Make a phone call, a note. I can tell you if you saw my office, it has letters of people, notes from people. I've read them many times because I never fully appreciated the difference I had made until I read it and reread it. And that's the advantage of putting things in writing. That's why I put it in a disc when I said it verbally. So there are a lot of ways. The website says you want to write it, you want to do a Zoom, you want to visit in person, we're going to make it easy for you. So the how, I think, is facilitated 
by the website. And there's no cost. There is no cost. This is free. Can right, you right. <laughs> free. Yeah. I'm not selling anything. I'm not promoting anything. Everybody wins. There's no winner and loser. This game has only winners. That's okay, right. I'm getting a little too excited. I think. No, I- you're right. Yeah, it's great. I love it. I love it. You know, it's funny. There's so many books that teach you how to protect your legacy and, you know, how to die financially, right? How to die well financially. But, you know, what you're teaching us how to do is emo- talking about the emotional side of it, right? So that you or the people you love or appreciate don't die without taking care of that before, while it's before it's too late. Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, I, I actually, because people have no problem worrying about their financial resources, mm-hmm. call mm-hmm. it a different kind of currency. Right. Mm-hmm. How current are you in letting people know that they've been important in your life? Absolutely. You know, this, uh, William James, this is not a new thing. So it isn't like it's a new emotion that we're acknowledging. It's a new act. The emotion goes back to William James was the first person to ever teach psychology in America. He said the deepest principle of human behavior is the craving to be appreciated. Hmm. That goes back a long way. (laughs) But we've done very little about it. Can you imagine? Right, right. Well, and I think it does go back to that idea of being stoic, right? And not wanting to be, well, you know, we want to be humble. So that's why we have such a hard time accepting praise. And so when we're so awkward about it, of course, we've created this culture of, you know, not being outwardly grateful, I guess, you know, and praising others. If you are not used to accepting praise, then how do you give others praise? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm going to make a point because it was one of the 44 people I reached out to actually told me he didn't need it. <laughs> he said no. Well, he said he didn't <laughs> need it. Yeah. And another friend of mine said, uh, I won't use his name, but he said to him, this isn't just about you. Yeah, that's right. Walter wants to enrich his life by having the opportunity to tell you. Once he said that, the door was wide open. Nice. Nice. I want to tell our listeners that they have an opportunity to hear you speak. You're going to give a TEDx talk on June 11th at the Previs Conrad. And by the way, listeners, the San Diego Writers Festival, which the premise is the official podcast of the San Diego Writers Festival, we are proud to promote this year's TEDx event. In fact, um, here at the premise, we're doing a series of interviews with several of the speakers, including Walter here, and tickets are going to go on sale April 11th. So that's just a couple days. I suggest you get your tickets right away and I'll see you there. (laughs) They'll definitely sell out. This year's theme is the seeds of change. Again, it's a one-day event. It's happening on June 11th, 2023. There's going to be 14 speakers taking the, the stage. Walter, why did you decide to turn your experience in this movement into a TEDx talk? Well, TEDx is, uh, I spent most of my life uh, one-on-one coaching and in small groups. And it seems to me I... That's, that's where I've been able to create the most impact. Mm. But this opportunity is such a broad message. It has no defining aspect to it. It's not religious. 
It's not economic. Uh, it's not political. <laughs> it's a worldwide message that can be embraced by everyone. TEDx allows you to get that message out to thousands of people. And remember, I'm after a million expressions of gratitude. And I think the TEDx audience is a perfect audience to magnify the message of the movement. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You're looking to change the world, aren't you? As it relates to this, it would be one special legacy for me. Indeed. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Reading the book has been wonderful. And I do recommend this book. It, you know, it was published many years ago, but it's timeless. This is a timeless book. This is the moment how one man's year-long journey captured the power of extraordinary gratitude. It's available where all books are sold. Again, I want to encourage our listeners to follow you, Walter Green, and this movement. We want to see that number go up and up <laughs> as you get the message out. Just say it now.org. You can also follow Walter on Facebook and Instagram at Say It Now Movement. And again, Walter, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a real pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with your audience and thank you for your thoughtful interview. Mm, it's my pleasure. This has been another episode of The Premise. Please follow The Premise on Twitter at Pod Premise and be sure to subscribe. Rate us wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate you listening and we look forward to next time. Until then, you can visit us at thepremisepod.com. Goodbye. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>